Hello and welcome to the Game Theory Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Vecini. We are presented by The Athletic here. Rob Doster is here, not from NBC Sports, but from The Rebound. The much better, stronger Rob Doster is here uh, now of The Rebound. I'm super excited to have him on uh, so that he can tell you all about his new venture and so that we can talk about all of the bullshit that went down with college athletics this week, the Big Ten decided to cancel football season. The Pac-12 decided to suspend all athletic activities uh, going forward uh, up until January. So it has a pretty real substantial effect on the NBA draft cycle, on the college basketball cycle, on everything that's happening throughout collegiate athletics. And I just wanted to have someone on to talk about what I think is a very convoluted and messy issue whenever you look across the board at the different directions that this could go. So Rob, how you doing, man? I'm I'm surviving, Sam. I'm surviving. It's been a little bit of a a wild uh, you know, week to 10 days um since I was laid off by NBC, but if we're being honest and and since now I don't work for them anymore and I'm no longer employed by them and I can kind of speak a little bit freely. I, I've been trying to, to find a change and, and find a way to make a move for a while. Um, I, I don't, I, I felt a little bit like a fish out of water in terms of what their vision of online content was and what I wanted to do uh, with the way that I, I do content. Like I don't like the, the, the bloggy style as much. I, I want to do bigger picture things and be able to do more podcasts and more TV and more um, stuff that was a little bit more rewarding and fulfilling. And I didn't think that I was getting that at NBC and it would have been nice to have a job lined up before uh, I, I decided to leave or, or that decision was made for me. But, you know, it is what it is. So I launched a, a newsletter on Substack called The Rebound. You can subscribe to it. Uh, all that stuff is in my Twitter profile. And, and anywhere that you follow me on social media, I've been blasting it out because, you know, when you're your own boss, you have to uh, you have to promote yourself as, as much as humanly possible. So I've been, been doing that and doing all these podcasts. And I'm glad. And, and you know what? I'm glad that finally someone other than Nicole Auerbach is able to do a, a media hit for something on college basketball. <laughs> it feels like she's the only one. Like every time I look up, she's on like Good Morning America. She's on uh, she's on CNN. She's everywhere. Nicole Nicole Auerbach is uh, is is blowing up. So I'm glad that I was able to uh, she, she was able to throw me a bone and let me come come on here and talk a little bit about the NCAA. Yeah, I feel like Nicole hasn't slept for about De- definitely not seventy two hours. Not. <laughs> Yeah, she. Uh, I saw that she tweeted out a thing where she had her dog on TV. That dog just looks incredible. So shout out, Nicole. She's done an exceptional job of reporting this entire thing. But, you know, I wanted to talk to you, Rob, because, A, you know, you and I talk literally every day of our lives. And we've talked about this a lot. And I think it'd be good to get our thoughts into a public forum uh, about what we think of this entire situation regarding the NCAA. Then, after I'm done with Rob, I'm going to get to an interview I recorded on Wednesday with Isaiah Stewart. Uh, Isaiah is a six foot nine center out of Washington who is a former National High School Player of the Year who made first team All Pac 12 and looks like he's going to go somewhere in that like post lottery first round range. But so whenever the news comes down on Monday and it started trickling out on Sunday, I guess as well that the Big Ten was going to cancel college football, or at least postpone it until the spring, which I think is a ridiculous idea, which we'll talk about in, you know, probably 20 minutes or whatever. And then the Pac-12 follows suit and says that they are going to suspend all collegiate athletics in their league until January. What, what kind of went through your mind whenever you saw that? That this was inevitable, 
that this was yeah. always going to be what happened. Like, I, I just don't understand how you can play football in this climate with kids that are on campuses, um, given the way that this stuff is going to spread. And uh, it just, it, it, it seems like everything that has been done, uh, well, let's just put it like this. There's nothing that has been done by anybody that has any kind of influence and any kind of decision-making power in college football and college athletics over the course of the last two, three, four, five months that would have allowed us to be able to play sports in the spring and, and what it's going to come down to is, or I'm sorry, in the fall, what it's going to come down to is we're in the spring in 2020, by the way. <laughs> yeah. Like, uh, are we going to be able to make the changes that we need to make to, to make the decisions that we need to make to put the, the infrastructure in place to be able to play sports in, in the winter and in the spring of 2021, because the way that it stands, I, I honestly, Sam, and, and I don't know if you feel this way, but I just, I, I cannot wrap my head around the idea that it is possible to be able to play college basketball or any kind of college sport. If it is not in a bubble, if you have kids and athletes on campus and there's other students on campus, I, I just, it's not going to work because someone's going to get the virus. Someone's going to test positive. And, and once you test positive, you can't go out and play. You can't spread this thing. So I, I just, I don't see how it works unless you create bubbles. And it does not seem like creating bubbles is something that the NCAA is kind of moving towards. Although, uh, to be honest, like the rumblings of that potential have kind of grown a little bit in, in recent days. And it seems like this push yep. by, by people like me and you to kind of get out there and say, you need to create a bubble has uh is something that people are listening to so hopefully that works out i'm, I'm gonna keep saying i mean I, I feel it feels like march all over again because all i've said like for the last six days is bubble 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 yeah i know typically we talk about a bubble whenever we talk about whether or not teams can make the ncaa tournament now we're talking about bubbles we're, we're gonna have teams on the bubble inside of a bubble by the time that april rolls around given the fact that we're probably gonna have may madness this year right uh first and foremost i do want to just like couch our entire conversation here in the fact that I do feel pretty strongly that there will be a college basketball season this year. Uh, a big part of this is that college football is in a very weird structure where the college football playoff is like a different beast than the NCAA, right? The Rose Bowl is a different beast than the NCAA, right? These college football bowls and the way that we crown a national champion, the NCAA certainly makes money off of licensing it, but they don't make, it's not nearly as essential to their bottom line as the NCAA tournament is to their bottom line, especially to all of the member institutions of the NCAA as well. So I firmly believe that those financial ramifications are at least going to force us into a situation where we're going to have an NCAA tournament. Now, that's not to say college football doesn't make more money than college basketball does. It absolutely does. 100%, no question. But I think the NCAA is going to fight for the NCAA tournament in a very real substantial way, uh, even more so than it will for a college football playoff to have. Right? Yeah. So, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, when they have $900 million on the line. 90% of a billion dollars is... They, they don't have coming into their organization if they are not playing the NCAA tournament. $900 million. The only way they get that is to play the NCAA tournament, and that's going directly to the NCAA. Like, uh, you, you kind of made the points, but college football goes to other organizations, and the NCAA is able to make whatever percentage they make off of that, right? But when you play college football, it's about getting 100,000 people that are buying a $50 ticket, to, and that money goes to the schools that are hosting those games. It's about uh, the money that goes to the networks because – 
the you know the Big Ten is uh, having their games played on the Big Ten Network or on Fox or you know the SEC is playing on CBS, whatever it is. Like that money goes to those conferences and the universities. But when it comes to the NCAA. 80% of their operating budget in a given year is based off of that television contract that they have with CBS and Turner, $900 million. I don't know if there's a single thing in this world that I would not kill myself doing for $900 million. That's where the NCAA is at right now. Yeah, 100%. So I think that they're going to do everything they can to make that happen. I firmly agree with you that it's going to have have to happen in a bubble. And that's why I was – I guess I wasn't surprised when Larry Scott came out in the Pac-12's release, uh, Larry Scott being the Pac-12 commissioner, and said, bubbles don't work for college athletics. I wasn't surprised because, A, Larry Scott's kind of a fucking moron uh, in terms of all of this. Like, we can just say that that's what it is. Uh, He's also a moron that is trying his damnedest to keep the status quo as it refers to the empowerment or lack of empowerment of athletes. And that is the whole other issue that continues to bubble even beyond the coronavirus pandemic. The fact that athletes like Trevor Lawrence and all of the Pac-12 athletes that uh, originally came out and signed uh, an agreement to try and form some sort of bargaining, uh, it wouldn't be a union necessarily, but it'd be a working group uh, that represents the interests of athletes. The Pac-12 and these other member institutions don't want to share anything with the athletes uh, beyond what they already have to in terms of scholarships and everything. That issue, I think, is what ultimately led Larry Scott to make those comments. But that issue is why I think in many ways the NCAA is going to have to get out of its own way. Uh and make the difficult decisions in regard to at least giving athletes a seat at the table in regard to bargaining their own uh, safety and health and give them a seat at the table in regard to uh, creating operating procedures that actually work for everyone involved. Like we can just remove the name, image, and likeness stuff that athletes certainly should be getting every single time that uh, their name, image, and likeness is used. We can remove the fact that they should be paid. At the end of the day, at the very fucking least, the NCAA needs to give athletes bargaining power. And if they don't, these athletes need to – make very real decisions about not playing because their safety is at risk. Because I I personally don't trust the NCAA and its member institutions, or at the very least, I don't trust all of them. There are certainly ones out there that I think will do a good job. It seems like, for instance, my alma mater, Ohio State, has done a great job based off of all of the athletes that are coming out, everyone that is uh, making comment upon what Ohio State's structures and uh, decision-making have been. Throughout this process, I think it seems very, very strong in regard to handling coronavirus. But not every member institution has the financial resources of Ohio State. Not every member institution is going to have people in charge that, frankly, take coronavirus as seriously as the Ohio State football program seems to be taking it. So I don't trust everyone in these positions of power to make decisions that will ultimately be in the best interests of athletes. So I think athletes really have the ability to use their power here to get what they need in order to play uh, college football next season. Yeah, and the other part of it is if you are the Pac-12 or you are one of these other big conferences and you're looking at a situation where it's, okay, we can – 
we can we can hold on to this idea of amateurism and we can hold on to this idea that these players are not employees and we are not a big business and we are not making this money and we're actually a nonprofit and there's not billions of dollars being generated by these athletes and uh, just cancel one year and wipe out one year worth of the money that you have coming in to be able to keep all that money for yourself in perpetuity or split it halfway this year and then half of that money for whatever you have for the rest of the foreseeable future, uh, while also uh, putting yourself in a position where you open yourself up to like liabilities for uh, for for doing this stuff in the past and lawsuits that you're going to be facing, whatever. Um, so if you can kind of hold on to this concept of amateurism and bite the bullet for one year where you don't have any money coming in because of it, then you're able to keep all that money for yourself for the future. So like if you're looking at this from a simple business perspective, like that's what you would probably recommend that the NCAA do, right? And and a lot of these conferences do is to try to hold on to it so you can keep all of that money for yourself. Because if you are, you know, we talk about a lot about these um, these shoe deals and these these apparel deals that these these schools get, and you know the one that always comes to mind is uh, Kansas getting the what is it nearly two hundred million dollars from Adidas, despite the fact that like they had this whole they're a victim of Adidas on the recruiting trail, blah blah blah, whatever. Right? Is Adidas or Nike or Under Armour or any of the other apparel company going to be able to spend nine figures or going to want to spend nine figures to put an entire team um, in these uniforms that have these logos on it when they can just say, all right, we want the quarterback, we want the running back, we want the star wide receiver and give us that defensive end that's going to go top five in the draft. Make sure we also get that point guard right over there and give those guys all the gear, give those guys the logos, pay them 10% of whatever we were going to pay the entire university for a given year, and boom, there you go. Then the guys that they actually want with that stuff on that they actually want to sponsor are getting paid. Well, everyone else is kind of like, hey, you know what, where's where's this money coming from? So um, if you're looking at this from a strictly business perspective, like that's what the NCAA wants to do. I think it's wrong. I think it's reprehensible. And like I, I kind of – I feel like every time that I'm we talk about this stuff, I'm always railing about how bad the NCAA is. But if you look at it from their perspective, like that's what you would want to do. If you Like in any other business where you say, okay, we either take no money coming in for this year, try to get by, maybe get a loan, whatever, and then we have all of that money, 100% of the money in the future versus 50% this year and 50% for the rest of time, I think you got to take the one year off and then uh, hope that you figure it all out in the long run, right? Yeah, and, you know, in many ways, like I called Larry Scott a moron earlier, and he knows the math on this. He's really not a moron. Uh, he is just a businessman that is trying to run the Pac-12. Now we can talk about Larry Scott's other decisions, cough, cough, Pac-12 network. But at the end of the day, that's what this is about. This entire thing is about money and the money it will cost. And I've seen some people bring up the idea of uh, bubbles being a cost that is – just something that schools can't really, at the end of the day, foot. And that, you know, the NCAA can't really even foot. I kind of understand that to an extent, but, and I know that the TV money is not as substantial in the NBA as it is in college. And I know that it's a nine-figure expenditure to create a bubble that makes sense. And we're talking about having to create multiple regional bubbles, given the fact that there are 350, is it seven teams in Division One now versus uh, 30 teams in the NBA? Or It's uh, not even 30. 20. It's, what is it, 22 that are actually in the bubble? Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's 22 that are in the bubble. So I get that this is a cost that is going to be insane. And I get the fact that 
there's also a question of Title IX, having talked to some coaches about it. Like a lot of their, a lot of the people that they talk to within their own compliance department, I guess, or uh, athletic department, maybe is the better way to put it, say that they would run into Title IX issues just doing a men's tournament. You would have to do a women's tournament as well. Uh, I think that they're probably much more concerned about the men's tournament, given that it's the one that makes money. That's not to say that that's right. We should certainly put on a women's tournament uh, next year. But at the end of the day, the one that makes the incredible amount of money is the men's tournament. That's the one the NCAA cares about, and that's the one that they're going to be focusing on trying to get to happen beyond all uh, shadow of doubt. Now, the problem with all of this is the NCAA has had since March to come up with ideas to make this work. They have had since March to come up with ideas to make college football work. The total lack of accountability, the total lack of any sort of decision-making and the abdication of decision-making by the NCAA is why I think there is a real threat to where college football does not happen this year. Uh, I know that they're trying to move it to the spring. At the end of the day, I think it's a really fucking tough sell to tell these kids that they have to play two seasons in eight months, right? Or even, like, try and push back the uh, – you know, the season to January next year and then kind of do like a stagger over the course of the next three years before we get it back to a start in September. It's just a really tough sell for me to tell these student athletes who you aren't paying, hey, I know that the whole goal here is that we're giving you a scholarship so that you can get an education and so that we can make money off of you and so that we can or so that you can get a chance to maybe go play professional football at some point. I don't think that it's worth those athletes, you know, well-being and body bodily well-being to have to go out and play two football seasons over the course of eight to nine months uh that, that's just a non-starter to me it is I hilarious have, how like the 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 talking point has been we are trying to protect these people's safety and these kids safety by not playing college football this year so we're going to have them go out there and beat themselves half to death two times for a full season in the span of eight months because that is much safer than anything else that we could think of. Like it just it's not it's not feasible. Like, and and you didn't even mention the the fact that the season would be going on while kids are supposed to be, you know, training for the NBA draft and preparing for or the the NFL draft and for that, right? So it's I don't Oh, I, I think I that they are even going into this. Yeah, I think they're going into this assuming that no real NFL draft prospect is going to play in the spring. There, there's no argument for someone like Justin Fields or Trevor Lawrence to play in the spring. It, it's it even insurance companies. I feel like would be like, no, that's a really fucking bad idea. We're not like we know that we have an insurance policy taken out, but like things have tangibly changed here. Come on. Yeah, it's it's not. It's just not going to work. You know, it just it, it's we're going to see a lot of walk-ons. You know, if you are a college student at a school like Ohio State and Michigan State and you've ever had dreams of playing Big Ten football and you were pretty good in high school and maybe you're kind of big and maybe you're faster than a lot of your friends, if you spend the next, I don't know, four or five months really working out hard, maybe do a couple cycles of steroids, really get yourself to a place where you're, you're you know, you're big, you're feeling good about yourself, go out and try out. You might, you're probably going to make it because they're probably going to need bodies. We're going to have a literal replacement situation. Like Shane Falco in the movie The Replacements went to Ohio <laughs> State. Like Shane Falco is going to be playing for Ohio State next year. I, I, was, I was literally thinking that. Like this would be a great plot for The Replacements too. Yeah, I love it. I'm in. So 
At the end of the day, what it's going to come down to, though, is I like the fact that the conversation is getting going a little bit earlier for college basketball than it did for football. But if the NCAA is just going to continue to abdicate its responsibility in the substantial way that it has and is just going to start, you know, they, they just started figuring out football like, Pete Thamel's been tweeting about like how uh, a lot of these conversations that would have seemed obvious to you and I four months ago have just started happening like over the course of the last two weeks. That's just insane to me. And I think that it's in part because a lot of these member institutions and a lot of these conferences thought the NCAA would give them some guidance. The NCAA was not communicating with the member institutions and the conferences saying that we're not going to give you guidance. It's going to be up to you. So there was just a massive bit of inertia that never resulted in anything getting done. And that's unacceptable in the NCAA's part. I think that there's going to have to be a very real uh, investigation into whether or not Mark Emmert is the person to lead the NCAA after the terrible dumbassery that has happened here on the part of the NCAA. Hint, hint, he's not smart enough to do this i don't think like it's just absolutely crazy to me that the ncaa decided essentially to abdicate all responsibility in regard to any sort of decision making if you talk to any coach that is within college basketball right now i'm not going to sit here and act like i have college football sourcing uh like many of the great reporters across the country do but college basketball coaches will just be like yeah we're not getting any guidance from the ncaa right now. like nothing that there, there's nothing that we know right now that is coming from the top level and like it's just our conference and it's our schools that are kind of setting the standard for us and if that's going to happen there's no way to create a uniform standard because all of these academics who run member institutions as university presidents and all of these business people that run these conferences are going to have markedly different opinions on coronavirus and on the response to coronavirus uh, across the board across college basketball so you're never going to get any, get the sense of uniformity that you need in order to cogently competently coherently run a college basketball season yeah the lack of centralized and organized and coordinated leadership in college athletics was completely exposed in during yeah. everything that happened over the course of like the last three months and so i think and and you tell me if you disagree with it. I I think that the Big Ten and the Pac-12 are just like making what will eventually be the inevitable decision for all of the other conferences, right? Um, but the yeah, the, I mean, you t you talk to uh, people in college basketball, they say, yeah, we don't really think we're going to play until January. You'll get some people who say, yeah, like maybe once people get out for Thanksgiving and it's basically kind of a bubble anyway, where our, our athletes are the only ones on campus. Maybe you can do it, but I mean, shit, like we can have another conversation about whether or not there should be people on college campuses right now, right? Yeah, like, well, there shouldn't, and and part of the problem right. is, and the reason you hear that with, with basketball coaches is because, like, they know what the cost is to build a bubble like that. Like, I was told by an NBA guy that it was, like, the number he heard was $150 million. And I don't want to, like, put that, that out there. That's the number that – it's out there. It's public already. That's okay, the number so, that I believe is public. Yeah, so it's, like, $150 million to build the bubble for the NBA. I don't think it would be quite that expensive for the, the college guys because I don't think that the stuff that they're going to need is necessarily going to be as high end. Like, you can kind of skirt some of the costs here or there. But you do have to remember that while there's not going to be as many teams in, like, a, a single conference bubble, you are going to need it for, for – much longer like it was what five weeks that you have all 22 teams and then you start the playoffs and, and teams start dropping out so we're talking about potentially doubling how long you're going to need to have uh, these teams 
in the bubble for college basketball season and these conference seasons to work. And I think that in theory, it does work for some conferences. Like when you have the Big Ten or the ACC or even the Big East and, and you know what kind of money you're getting out of those television deals, there may be a way to make that at the very least uh, you could get your money back from from playing these games, right, and have some kind of revenue coming into the conference and going into those universities. But for the smaller leagues, it would have to be subsidized by the NCAA. Like, there's no way that the Southland is going to be able to build a bubble, right? They're not going to be able to go no. get a, like a centralized location and house everybody there for two months and be able to have all the courts and all the food and all the training and all the other stuff that you need to be able to survive when you're living in this bubble. So what it kind of comes down to there for me is that like that would have to get subsidized by the NCAA. But if you're a school like Wisconsin and you're already facing this massive budget deficit because you are not getting these football revenues coming in and you're not getting these ticket sales and basketball is not going to be played on your campus and you don't get season tickets and you don't get to sell parking. And you don't get to make the money that you would normally make off of selling concessions at these games. Well, all the money that comes into the school because of those sporting events is not going to be there. And these athletic departments are going to be hurting financially. Do you think that they are going to want to say, hey, you know what, we'll just shit. We'll like, we'll make sure that the Southland can play the tournament or play their season and play their conference tournament so they could have one team get into the NCAA tournament and lose by 40 as a 16 seed in the first round? Like, no, they're not going to want to do that. So I don't see how, like, I don't see where the money comes from for like two thirds of the conferences to be able to, to play what they want to play to be able to have their seasons happen. So that, to me, is why being able to kind of build a mini bubble when the kids leave after Thanksgiving if they're not coming back and jam-packing as many conference games in as you can between, like, Thanksgiving and, like, the middle of January whenever students get back to campus, like, that is the – that's probably the most realistic route you have towards getting a season in if you are a conference that is at the lower mid-major level. Now, keep in mind, that's not going to be anything close to a bubble because so many of these conferences are so spread out. Like, if you are Charleston and you have to get to Northeastern to play a road game, you're not taking a bus from South Carolina to Massachusetts. That ain't happening. You're going to get on a plane. But if you get on a plane, you're not on a bubble. And if you're not in a bubble, then maybe someone gets it. Maybe someone has been exposed. Like, are you really going to feel comfortable playing those games if that happens? So I just – the feasibility of this all is just – it's beyond me. I don't think there's the money to be able to support it for some of those smaller leagues, but I think that they're going to try. And I think at the end of the day, what we're probably going to see this season, like if I had to bet right now, Sam, and and tell me if you think this is wrong, but I would bet that nothing more than like the top seven or eight leagues really gets played. And we get an NCAA tournament that is all like power conference teams and maybe Gonzaga and maybe some teams from the Atlantic 10 or the Mountain West or the, uh, the American Athletic Conference. So I think that that is the most likely outcome. I do think that they're going to try to make this work in a similar model to how baseball has tried to make it work with these lower leagues, like where they're just testing like crazy and hoping that their players do the right thing, right? Like we've seen with the Cleveland Indians, for example, that doesn't always happen. We've seen with the St. Louis Cardinals where sometimes you just get fucking coronavirus, right? Because... Whenever you're not in a bubble, you're out in the world and you're leaving your house as much as professional baseball players have to leave their house. Sometimes you get coronavirus, right? Like it is an exceptionally difficult problem problem to solve for the NCAA for these smaller leagues. And to be honest, I think that that is part of why the NCAA passed the decision making off onto the leagues because every single league is so different. Now, 
in my opinion, you can still treat each league differently and treat each league uh intelligently uh, and treat it as if it is, you know, a snowflake that is different from every other 32 odd snowflakes in terms of conferences, right. And create real tangible solutions that are uh, able to be uniformly implemented across the board, uh, regardless of league size. That's what the NCAA is lacking right now. I know they put out like a guidelines sheet uh, that exists, but like it's nowhere near as substantial as like what the NBA did, for example, in terms of creating real tangible testing uh, procedures that will work across all uh, all of everything that they're trying to do. The other reason that I think that colleges, conferences, etc., think that it's better to wait, and this goes to football as well as it does to basketball, I think that they're really hoping that over the course of the next few months, not only is there more progress on a vaccine and potentially mass producing a vaccine, they can get to the point where if there's a May NCAA tournament, potentially a vaccine could be ready by then. I think that that is extraordinarily aggressive based off of all of the reporting that we've seen. Uh, you can go to New York Times. You can go to uh, any sort of newspaper has all sorts of really good information on where we are in terms of a vaccine, at least the bigger ones that are out there. But I think more than that, they want to find a cheaper alternative that is quicker in regard to getting results that can be mass produced easier uh, than what we currently have. And that could potentially be cheaper for these schools to implement whenever uh, creating procedures for a bubble. Uh, that would potentially change the financial calculus of these things. Having said that, I saw, you know, our friend Brian Snow was tweeting at Goodman uh, last night. And Brian, God love him. He's been on the show multiple times. Uh, he's he's going a little heavy on this stuff, but he made a really good Brian point. Brian Snow like, going a little bit overboard, a little bit heavy? No, no way. No one, could right? see, no one could see that one coming. That's not in his scouting report at all. Never. Uh, he made a really good point, though. Just, like, hoping that something happens is what got us here, right? We can't just hope. We have to come up with very real plans that make these things work. Otherwise, we have no shot of implementing a plan that is functional by the time the NCAA tournament uh, potentially rolls around or the college, start of the college basketball season potentially rolls around in January. Yeah, I mean, the two things, well, there's really three things, um, and they're all a little bit interconnected. So it's the amateurism part is one of the reasons why we're not necessarily seeing the bubbles happen, right? Um, the financial part is why people are so concerned about the amateurism and the bubbles actually being created, right? So all of that is kind of inter interconnected. The other problem you, you kind of touched on a little yeah, bit and, is like to, let's let's go point by point on this. You hit we we kind of talked about the bubble uh, and the amateurism aspect earlier on in the podcast. And again, I just can't emphasize enough. Like Larry Scott kind of gave the game away whenever he mentioned, uh, unlike professional sports, college sports cannot operate in a bubble. Um, the sentence that goes unsaid there without prompting a discussion of amateurism. Basically what he's saying is that maintaining the status quo in regard to athlete rights and in regard to amateurism is more important to them. than yes. uh, That's what it comes down to. Uh, it's whether or not that ends up being the case with the NCAA tournament. I think that it probably doesn't, but in regard to conference play, I do think that that is the case. 
yeah, they'd rather not play this season than have to give up um, the concept of amateurism, which sucks. But, you know, that's that, at this point, that's kind of the reality um, that we're living in. The other problem is uh, like the, the liability aspect. And I feel like uh, I feel like this is kind of a straightforward point that I'm going to make, but it's something that I keep seeing discussed on Twitter. Um, it's something that I keep like having people kind of like ask me or get my mentions or like, how is it okay to like play any sports and, and, and put the students in the bubble if it's not okay or uh, play any sports and have students on uh, players on campus. If, um, if it's, if it's okay to be able to bring students back. And the answer to that is simple, right? Like if you're playing sports the liability, the way the liability comes in is that if you're playing sports, then there's no, like way for you to socially distance. There's no way for you to wear a mask when you're playing basketball and be able to stay six feet away from people. There are guidelines that you can put into place where if you have students coming back, you say, you cannot get this close. We're going to have desks six feet apart in every single lecture hall. We're going to have you uh, doing Zoom classes and learning online every time uh, there are too many people in a class uh, to be able to get them all into the room. We recommend and strongly suggest that you do not go to bars and you do not go to parties and you do not share drinks with each other and you do not like do all the stuff that college students normally do. And if those college students then go and do all of those things, you're not liable because you said we had the structures in place for them not to get in trouble uh, and not to get this disease, but they didn't listen to us. How is that our fault? We told them what not to do. They didn't listen. How can we be liable for something when they're not listening to what we're telling them to do? Uh, when it comes to, to football and basketball, like if you're asking them to play, like you can't socially distance. You can't get away from that. So that's where the liability factor um, comes in, and that's where people are at risk. That like It's a completely different conversation, and I don't know if you were planning on going down this road, but the whole myocard- myocarditis, am I saying that right? The uh, the, the inflammation yep, of the inflammation of the heart that has been showing up, I think in uh, now it's 12 Big Ten athletes have shown some kind of uh, symptoms and problems with their heart where they may not get cleared to play again this season. We don't know if this is like factual, but um, it's been reported that Michael Ojo uh, in um, he was playing for, I think, the Belgrade, Red Star Belgrade in Serbia. Michael Michael Ojo. Right? Michael Ojo. Um, rest in peace. Uh, he reportedly um, – contracted coronavirus, then recovered from it, and then died from a heart attack at a practice or a workout. Like if that, imagine if that happens to somebody when we're watching a game live on TV to a college athlete, that would be, that one, that would be absolutely devastating and horrific to watch. But two, the, like the financial impacts, and I hate to bring this up, but it's something that you have to think about because that's what these conferences have to think about. And these money men have to think about what would be the financial impact in that? Like you're, you're opening yourself up to so much risk and so much liability that that's what they're going to think of. Like they're not necessarily saying, oh man, we'd be so devastated if this kid died and this player died and this member of our community died and, and this teammate of ours died, they're thinking like, oh man, we'd be in so so much trouble financially. Like maybe our endowment would go down by 5% if this kid ends up dying in a game that we're asking him to play when he can't socially distance. So that's where the liability factor comes in. Yeah, and in regard to Michael Ojo, uh, that fucked me up this weekend or this past weekend. I'm not going to lie to you. Uh, there's been some uh, statement from Red Star, which is his uh, team over in Serbia, that I guess that his blood analysis still, and this comes from Eurohoops.net, uh, was still bad on July 29th, while his exam on August 5th showed that pneumonia had slowed down. Um, you know, he had gotten tests at a private clinic. They gave him um, recommendations to go to a COVID referral clinic, essentially. And, you know, he essentially, what it came down to is that Michael Ojo 
at one point tested positive for coronavirus, had recovered but hadn't gotten cleared uh, at the end of the day to go like full bore in terms of training. I, you know, he got permission for light and moderate physical activity, uh, and that as soon as he felt tired, he should stop. Uh, he apparently told his doctor that he trained even before he was cleared, and that he was getting tired really fast. He practiced on the 31st, August 1st, and August 4th before passing away during the next training session. Um, the president, for what it's worth, of uh, Red Star, by the way, is you know really doing a great job of saying like look we should find out what the complete truth is in terms of this like you know was he completely recovered from uh his coronavirus was he uh should he have been training just everything like that it, it seems like there is still a lot up in the air here and look michael ojo is also a seven foot one person who's 310 pounds right like we need to learn is uh, much as we can about the way that he passed, but also knowing that someone who is this big and um, he just may not be necessarily a representative sample size, right? At the end of the day, though, we need to figure out what happened here. And if Michael Ojo's passing was in part due to training following coronavirus, like there are a lot of factors here that we can parse through with his passing. But at the end of the day, someone died very quickly after they had been tested positive for coronavirus. Like that, that's something we need to learn about, I think. And, and that's why I think a lot of, um, you know, you hear about all the medical experts and the opinions and, and data that has been given to a lot of these, uh, the, the presidents um, and the conferences and all that. And that's why I think there was such a stark turn. Like it was, it was very strange how on like a Friday night, the SEC is having their whole like conference release party and all of this stuff is getting posted. And on like a Wednesday, the Big Ten is sending out protocols for their season. And then you wake up on Saturday morning and like Pat Forty is tweeting like, oh, there's whispers that this this like, season might not happen. And then uh, within like it felt like 24 hours after that on like a Sunday night, then all of a sudden it's like, yeah, you know what, Big Ten – Pac-12 football, it's not going to happen. It's, it's the that that cart's been uh, that 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 horse has been let out of the barn. So um, it was it, the speed at which that turned can tells me there had to have been some kind of like medical thing that got, that got put in front of these people's faces where they said like, oh wow, I did not realize that it could potentially be this bad. So um, it's, I mean, I, I that would be the, the the idea of that happening during a game is just. That's got to be the scariest thing for all of these people that are making these decisions. And it really should be. Like that's that right there is the stuff that, that we are trying to avoid. And, and when you keep people from getting a virus that is literally called the novel coronavirus because it's new and we don't know a goddamn thing about it, that's why like, social distance. We're, I'm starting to get frustrated, Sam. I'm starting to get frustrated. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to turn it back over to you because I, I, well, I, can't, I can't with this anymore. I, can't, I literally can't. I'm frustrated because – there are a lot of very disingenuous people who continue to note that, oh, yeah, like it, it doesn't hurt uh, young people. It doesn't affect young people. I mean, Michael Osho was 27 and we don't know if this had an impact on him. Like, frankly, because, again, like you said, this is the novel coronavirus. This is the first of its kind uh, in regard to this specific strand of coronavirus, we do not know what the long-term impacts are. This has existed for under a year. It is impossible to know what the long-term impacts of this thing are because we cannot have studied what the long-term impacts of this thing are because we haven't had enough time to study what the long-term impacts of this thing are. And NBA athletes 
can know that. They can make a decision based off of that. They can have medical experts tell them, look, we don't know what the decision, what is going to happen. We don't know um, what the long-term impacts here are. But they have a seat at the table with the NBA to where they can make their own decision in regard to whether or not they want to play as a playing group. It won't be unanimous. There will be players who want to sit out, but they have a seat at the table and they are able to collectively bargain procedures that work for them in regard to making sure they don't get coronavirus and what happens if they do get coronavirus. College athletes do not have that seat at the table. And that is where I think this is the most fucked up part about that. They do not have a chance to collectively bargain what the best procedures are for their own bodies as colleges are going to ask them to go out and play. That, to me, that can't happen. And if the Pac-12, all of these groups that are working together across college football specifically right now, I would implore them to continue to fight for their rights because that, I think, is going to be the most important thing going forward for these athletes, to be able to make their own decisions in regard to having a voice to get procedures that work for them and not just uh, – be stuck utilizing the procedures that these people who frankly may not have their best interests at heart in every single way, uh, tell them to do. Yeah. And when it comes down to it, this, you're never going to have more power as a college athlete than you do right now. So if you really want to get out there and try to influence change, whether it is, um, social justice stuff, whether it's the black lives matter stuff, whether it is trying to get college athletes to be employees of the university, whether it's trying to create a union or a players association or whatever it is, like whatever you believe in as a player, like you've never had a better opportunity to make it happen than right now. So I, I, you know, I, I made a lot of jokes and I said it was like kind of dumb when people were like, oh, it's so inspiring to see all these players do all this, blah, 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 listen to the players. Well, you know what? To me, it really is. And it's not just because Trevor Lawrence decided to like tweet out a graphic that said hashtag we want to play or whatever, right? It's watching these kids realize the power and the influence that they have and seeing them assert it because for so long they haven't done that. So um, I don't know how many college athletes actually listen to your podcast, Sam, but if any of any of you do, keep doing it, man. Keep doing it. You got more supporters than you realize. Yeah, I think so, too. Like, I totally understand that college athletes want to play. I think it's great that they want to play. I also think that they want to play under terms that work for them. And they, they, they should negotiate for, for it. Like, have, have a say in. That's, that's the biggest yep. thing is they don't have a say in it. I want to see them have it. 100%. 100% agree. The final thing here that I think – I honestly haven't really heard anyone bring up yet is according to 538 right now, Joe Biden has like an eight point lead right on Donald Trump in the election that's coming up. We can talk about the efficacy of looking at polls right now. We can talk about whether or not it's worthwhile, whatever. Right. But regardless, there is an election coming up and wherever you fall on the political spectrum, that election is going to have an incredible impact on how these procedures continue to be implemented countrywide. Because at the end of the day, look, like I saw an article posted by Karan Phillips on Deadspin, like, uh, what was it, yesterday, two days ago, where it was basically like Donald Trump is the reason we don't have college football this year. I think in general, the country's response and the overall uh, lack of lack of procedures being implemented nationwide is a big part of why we are not going to have collegiate athletics this year because, or at least until the end of 2020 
or well, maybe look, I know I know that you're you're employed and like you can you're you're trying to like hedge your bets a little bit, but so I will say it more forcefully because I don't have any bosses to answer to. That is one hundred percent the reason why we are here because the virus has been spreading in our country much more than anywhere right. else. We don't have as much contact tracing as we can. We have not had the right messaging put out by the leadership in our country from the very beginning of all of this, right? Like how many times did you hear uh the, the the president or the people that were speaking for the president say things like uh this is going to go away it's going to disappear there's not going to be that many deaths you don't need to be that worried about it. it's not that bad it's just a flu blah 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 whatever if we had been taking this as seriously as we should have all the way back in the beginning and ramped up the production of masks and prevented the concept of like wearing a mask from becoming like a political debate from uh, eliminating this idea that like we're we're oppressing people from their freedoms of being an American by saying that you should probably stay six feet away from people so you don't spread this virus by getting rid of this idea that like just because it's only old people that are dying we should not care about whether or not we are spreading this virus as much as possible the, the lack of the lack of planning and the lack of instituting those plans and the lack of actually having any idea what you are talking about like in England, and in Germany and in France and in all of these other countries, you are having sports without a bubble. Like the Premier League was played without a bubble. And they went through the final, like, I think it was 15 rounds of testing over, what, there's 20 Premier League clubs with at least 25 players and all the support staff, whatever. Everybody associated with those teams. 15 rounds of testing. They had 20 positives total over the course of two months for everybody in the leagues. And we had 20 positives alone on the Miami Marlins. So I, I know you got to say what you got to say. I'm saying it more forcefully. That is exactly why. So if we want to have like more sports come in, then, you know, go and, and make the decision that you got to make when you vote. No, that's 100% right. And what I'm trying to figure out then is let's say if Joe Biden wins the election, how does that change the way that the entire country operates from a coronavirus perspective, because that will have a significant impact, arguably a bigger impact than anything that the NCAA can do in regard to whether or not college athletics is played next year. Yeah, I think you're you're absolutely right on that, because it will be a point in time where the decisions that get made from the top down from a country, le- like the country as a whole will change. And I just hope that uh, it, it doesn't it doesn't become a fight. Right. I hope that when we get a different decision maker in place, like people will start listening, but I'm not 100% convinced that will happen. Hell, I'm not even 100% convinced that when we get a vaccine, enough people are going to take it to kind of eliminate the spread. Yeah, I also have that significant concern. I would hope that messaging uh, countrywide is implemented to say, like, this is a necessity. Honestly, I would hope that there is some sort of, uh, you know, law that's put into place saying, you have to take this vaccine. Uh, now, that would not go over well, I don't think, uh, with many portions of the country. But look, uh, I think that that would be the safest way to implement uh, a vaccine countrywide uh, in order to make sure that no one uh, no one decides to take it upon themselves to continue to try to spread this virus uh, out of spite, which I feel like is oftentimes what a lot of these idiots that you see on the Internet are doing. Um I guess what I'm trying to figure out, though, is, is there a chance that, like, until there is a vaccine, that Biden does something similar to what is happening in Australia right now, where the entire state of Victoria has, like, a curfew until 8 o'clock, 
and has or uh, has a curfew that starts at eight o'clock in that at night. And then additionally, uh, you basically can't leave your house unless you're doing like an absolute necessity activity. You can only ha- send one person from your household to a grocery store. Like there are all these different little techniques that somewhere like Australia is using. How significant do those strategies get in regard to the change in our day-to-day lives? And if that ends up being the case, how significant does that impact be on college athletics and on athletics as a whole, by the way, because like the NBA, it looks like they're looking at anything from a December 25th start to a like March start, depending on, you know, what you read, like John Hollinger and David Aldridge over at my place of work just wrote that like a March start is being considered. So I'm very interested to see how this entire thing works out. Like, I think there's a very real chance that like an administ- a different administration does things so markedly differently that it literally changes our way of life in a lot of ways. I mean, that's really what's going to have to end up happening. Until there is a vaccine, our way of life is never going to go back to being the same. Like people just kind of have to accept that. And um, if you're, if you can wrap your head around this idea that like you're okay, you don't get to go party at bars, and we're not going to be sitting in a, a, a seats in a stadium, and there's not going to be you know the the same kind of live concerts, and just accept that we're probably not getting any of that back for like at least a year, maybe more. Then I think that you're you could probably be in a much healthier and happier space, figuring out ways to kind of do what you want to do on a daily basis without having to be near people and and while being able to socially distance and while wearing a mask and doing all of those things. So I, I've gotten to the point where I've just accepted that, you know, like I'm probably not going to be uh, having locker room access until like 2023 if it ever happens again, if the, we ever get a vaccine that ends up being effective enough. So. Um, with for me and you know since we're talking about college basketball here like since march since we realized the scope of this thing i have always been kind of putting myself in the frame of mind where i'm saying that if we get any college basketball at all i'm considering it a win it's the same way that i was saying if we get any nba at all even if it's in a bubble and eight teams aren't there and uh you know it's just we're, we're, we're rigging it to make sure that Zion Williamson is able to actually show up and all of these other things. Like as long as you get something, consider it a win in, in this, in this day and time, right? Like that's just kind of the way that you have to think about things instead of being upset that we're not going to be getting the Maui Invitational, be happy that it's like, okay, we're going to get six win six weeks of like uh, kind of a, a modified bubble of Big East basketball. And we actually get to see Villanova and UConn play again as, as conference rivals. Like this is going to be a lot of fun, even if it's only like a 15 game season or sample size or whatever, just put yourself in the mindset that anything that we get is going to be a reward because nothing's going to go back to normal for too long. Yeah. Uh, I would agree. Do you have anything you want to talk about with the NBA bubble? I, I love it. Like it, it's been, it's been awesome to me. Like, you, you know, I'm not, I've always been more of like a college basketball guy um, just because like I grew up on, on the Yukon Huskies and I grew up on the big East and it's like what I was watching from the time I was like eight years old. So college basketball has always been my thing. Whereas like I'll watch the NBA the same way that I'll watch like the NFL or I'll watch like European soccer. Like it's just, it's something that I enjoy as opposed to something that like I love, but this bubble, like the level of competitiveness, the fact that you have all these guys in the same place at the same time, it's just been, I don't know, man, it feels like the NBA has been at a different level for me. And maybe it's just because I'm watching it more, but my, like it just, it, it feels so much more fun and so much more intense. 
Yeah, no, I've really loved it. I'm so excited the NBA exists right now. I'm so excited to write about the NBA like I do most times. Um, I love talking about uh, basically college and college athletics and uh, certainly college prospects that are going to be in the NBA soon. But, I mean, shit, like I just wrote about six guys that have uh, really shown out in the bubble for yesterday. And, you know, watching Darius Baisley, by the way, be awesome. Yeah, who saw that coming? Who saw Michael Porter Jr. Uh, turning into the number one pick out of nowhere? Yeah, I'm not too stunned by the Porter thing. The Baisley thing, like, totally shocked me because I even, like, I've seen Baisley play live, like, a lot um, in high school, like, at the UIBL level, and I've seen him play, uh, you know, like, in different, you know, camp settings live. Like, I've seen him a bunch, and I didn't see this jump shot progression coming this quick at all, and it's, like, totally transformed the way he is. I ranked him at number 41 on my draft board because I was like, I think he's probably going to be a guy where the second team that gets him ends up being the team that uh, gets the best out of him. Right. And that does not look very good right now. I was very, very wrong. Like someone, it was funny. Like someone like tweeted at me. It's this fucking moron who always tweets at me whenever there's something. He's like, burn the receipts. You had bull bull at 37 and Darius Baisley at 41. Man, like I don't hide from this shit. Like when you rank a hundred players every year, you're going to get shit wrong. Uh, Darius Baisley is certainly one that it looks like uh, I have, I have misjudged. Bull bull at 37 doesn't, isn't that bad. I've watched, I, I was going to do a piece on him. So I've, I've watched every second that he's played in the bubble and like bowl ball at 37 is it's you're, you're not wrong on that one yet. Maybe you will be if certain things change, but you're not wrong on that one yet. The the last thing I do want to say about why I think um, the NBA, like the, this bubble has been so, so much fun for me to watch is it's kind of like the playoffs in the sense where it feels like every possession actually matters. And maybe that's yep. just, you know, because it's been bigger games and there's so much more impact on what uh, the playoffs were actually look like. And, you know, especially with like the Suns and um, who is it? the Suns and the Spurs and who else is fighting for that last playoff spot? Thunder? No. Uh, the Grizzlies are fighting for it and the Blazers are fighting yeah, for it. Yeah, that's right. The Blazers. So it, it feels like every possession matters so much more. And, and to me, the knock on the NBA was always like so much of it is just like, it's kind of irrelevant, right? Like you have teams that are tanking and it looked like they're trying to lose. And uh, you have so many games and so much of your product is kind of like um, they're just going there to get the games in when, when the, the teams know that it's not something that actually matters. Right? They're, they're basically just going to collect a check more or less, especially when you get to the second half of the season and teams kind of realize where they stack up and they realize they're not going to be able to actually go out and win a title. All of that kind of, it brings down the entire level of um, what we're watching. Whereas, in the bubble, and I know that there are teams now that are kind of like resting guys, and so the last couple of days have not been the same level as, as what it was for like the first kind of week and a half or so. But it feels like every possession matters more than anything else. Every possession is life or death. And when you have the best players in the world playing at that level for 48 minutes, like it is just – it's unbelievable to watch. Like seeing Dame Lillard go off for 61 points, like that is – as enjoyable of an experience as watching sports as it was for me, you know, watching Tottenham get to the uh, the semifinals of the the Champions League last year, right? Like that was just fun and thrilling, and these guys are so talented. That's the other part about it, man. When you watch a lot of college basketball and then you binge on the NBA, you're like, holy shit, these motherfuckers are so good. Like I, I just I, yeah. every once in a while, like you get hit with that moment where it's like, wait a second, you mean to tell me that the guy that is playing the garbage time minutes was all league at UCLA 
wow, these these dudes can play. Oh, the best is whenever you like watch a ton of European basketball, which I know you have. You've watched Killian Hayes a decent amount. Uh, you did a video on him, right? Yeah, Kill- I watched a lot of Killian Hayes, a lot of a lot of uh, Denny Abdia, a lot of um, Lamelo Ball, and like it's just the random guys who's like, oh shit, Jay Sean Tate, like he averaged like 15 points a game at Ohio State, and he's only in Australia. Like it's the moment yeah. like that. Like see Jerome Randall out there killing people in like the Bundesliga. Oh yeah, like Jay Sean Tate, I think has like a real chance to get an NBA deal this year. Like Jay Jay Sean's really good. Um, Anthony Dremick averaged like 15 a night for Boise for three years and was like a two or three time All Conference player. He's like a good player in Australia. Like Kadeen Carrington, you know, to go to Killian Hayes. Like he he had an incredible year this year in Germany. He's shooting the shit out of the ball. Like that guy has a chance to be. Uh, an NBA player this year. Who was the kid that was like a that was that was um, at Eastern Washington and ended up being like the 55th pick? Tyler Tyler Smith? Harvey. Yeah, Tyler Harvey. It was fun seeing him show. Like that's my favorite thing about watching these European games. It's like, oh shit, that, I I forgot about him. He's still playing. But like, but like you see these guys murder like pro competition, right? And then you realize they would be like the 15th man on an NBA roster or like the 13th man on an NBA roster in some cases. And that the guys ahead of them in the NBA are so fucking good. <laughs> like the, when you watch like basketball across the world, like you've started to, and like I've done for years, like, man, you just get so much fucking respect for how good NBA players are. Like it is absolutely insane how good you have to be to play at that level. Yeah. And, and the, the part of it that I think is, is worth reinforcing here is that if you make the NBA, like let's say that you are projected as a top ten player in your class, like right, like and and you got all this hype coming out, and you make it to the NBA, and you last in the NBA for ten years, but you never really get much more than being like a pretty good starter, but you're mostly a rotation guy. Maybe like you have a couple years where you average twelve points a game, whatever. Like if you get to that level and you were projected as a top ten player in your class, like they pretty much got that right. I feel like there's this idea where if you get this hype coming out of high school and this hype coming out of college and you don't end up being LeBron James, you're kind of looked at as something of a disappointment. Whereas the simple fact that you are in the NBA for as long as you're in the NBA proves that you're one of the 100 best in the world at doing your job, whether it's like a point guard or an off guard or a wing or whatever it is. Right. Right. Like the, here's an example, Tyus Jones. He was a top 10 player coming out of high school. He goes and he's a point guard for Duke and he goes and he wins a national title and he has this great performance in the national title game, but he only ends up being the 25th pick and he only ends up kind of being like a rotation guy for a couple different organizations. To me, I like that's him making it. That's him. He doesn't, he doesn't, uh, you know, go past what his potential is, and maybe he didn't quite reach his ceiling, but he's basically doing what he was supposed to do. He ended up being a, a good NBA player, whereas I feel like other people will look at that and be like, well, he didn't end up, you know, being as good as he possibly could be, so this dude's a bust kind of a deal, and it's just, it's laughable to me that people think that way. Well, that, and like even think about it from a, uh, yeah, from like a financial standpoint, right? Yes, that you know, someone like a let, let's see what random name I can pull out here. Someone like a Harry Giles who has struggled even early in his career. He'll definitely get another contract. He's been pretty good this year, not like great this year, but it took him a couple of years to get healthy and everything. Harry Giles has still made like six and a half million dollars already. He's probably going to be a backup center long term. 
but he's going to stick in the NBA for a decade despite being the number one overall pick. Like, that's a win for Harry Giles. Like, that is um, just everything he's gone through, yeah, it's a win, but even just from any standpoint possible, I think it's a win. Yeah, and the other one that I look at is someone like an Andrew Wiggins, right? Like, there's a lot of people that were considered yep. an Andrew Wiggins a bust when he has – Gotten to the NBA, he's I think by the end of his contract, he's going to have made what like two hundred something million dollars. Like he'll probably end up making yeah. three hundred million at least in his career. Um, he's averaged I want to say it's twenty one points for six seasons, and he's still only twenty four years old. And there are people that are like, yeah, he's only one of the top seventy five basketball players on the entire planet. So he was a bust, and he didn't deserve the hype that he had coming out of high school. No, he's probably in like. Maybe he like the bottom 25% of his range of outcomes based off of what he was when he was 16 years old. But that when you project these kids, that's kind of what you're saying, right? Like when your range of outcomes is that you could go be anywhere from the best player in the world to the 100th best player in the world. And that we're saying that when you're 15 years old and you end up being like 75, that pretty much means that we got those projections right. And you were like, we were on with saying like, he's a great prospect. Shooting didn't develop the way we thought it would. The alpha mentality didn't come around the way we thought it would. Maybe he's not as good defensively as someone with his physical tools could be whatever. Like you can create all of these reasons and all of these narratives, but the bottom line is like the dude is averaging 20 something points a game in the NBA as a 24 year old. Like he, he lived up to the hype. He was worth the hype. Yeah. A hundred percent, thousand percent agree. Uh, you can maybe say that the Timberwolves should have taken someone differently. Maybe. Sure. That's, they probably should have taken different, someone that's different. A, that's a different conversation. By the way, you go back and look at the 2014 NBA draft. It's not great. That was a draft that I thought was pretty good at the time. Uh, I was also 24 and pretty fucking dumb. But, like, that was a draft that was considered to be strong at the time. Andrew Wiggins is the number one pick. Jabari Parker is the two pick. Joel Embiid went three. He's like – him and Nikola Jokic are, like, very clearly the two best players in this class. But, like, you go back through – Aaron Gordon's good. Dante Axum is fine. Uh, Marcus Smart's a good player. Julius Randle's an NBA player for sure. Nick Stauskas is no longer in the NBA. Noah Vonley is like hanging on the back end of rotations in the NBA. Alfred Payton is an NBA player, probably a backup. Doug McDermott's a backup. Dario Saric, probably going to be a sixth man starting soon. Nick Zach Levine is a good starting caliber shooting guard. CJ Warren's a good starting caliber shooting guard. Yusuf Nurkic is a good starting caliber center. Then you get into Adrian Payne, James Young, Tyler Ennis, Bruno Caboclo, Mitch McGarry, Jordan Adams, Shabazz Napier, PJ Hairston, CJ Wilcox, Josh Hustis. Those guys were all first round picks in the 2014 NBA. I love that you said Jordan Adams. I saw him play in TBT and he looked like he had eaten the previous Jordan Adams. Good for Jordan, man. He's gotten he's gotten paid. He made some money. He was definitely living his best life for uh for more than a couple of years. Man, Jordan Jordan only got two years in the NBA. That's a bit of a bummer. That's a shame. Um all right. Rob, tell the people where they can find your work. Plug the rebound one more time. So go and find the rebound. I believe the site is robdoster.substack.com. Uh, go and subscribe. There's a free option where you just get the email newsletter. There's also a subscriber option where I will have some more in-depth stuff coming. I have some good stories specifically on Sam Hauser of Virginia, uh, something on Luca Garza, something on Jared Butler, something on Io DeSumo coming within the next week or so. So if you are interested in that and you are interested in learning about those guys just a little bit more, um, specifically what they kind of went through during their pre-draft process, uh, then yeah, you need to go subscribe. I hope that's enough of a sale for you, and I hope to see it at $7 a month. It's really not that bad. Yeah, Rob's great. Go subscribe to The Rebound. He does a fantastic job. He'll be on the podcast again just to promote The Rebound. Like, I'll probably just 
you know, let him come on be like, hey, dude, go buy the rebound. That'd be great. Uh, we'll be back here momentarily, though, with an interview with Isaiah Stewart. All right, and we're back. We're here with Washington Center and potential first-round pick Isaiah Stewart. He was the Gatorade National Player of the Year in high school, averaged 17 points and nine rebounds this year for Washington, uh, was first-team All-Pac-12, was consistently among the guys that when I talked to opposing coaches that played Washington or you know played a bunch of different players around the country, they spoke in such glowing terms about how dominant and how difficult of a problem Isaiah Stewart was to solve. So, Isaiah, thank you for coming on, man. I'm really glad to have you. Yes, sir. No problem. I'm definitely thankful to be here. Appreciate you for having me. So, the thing that I open with for every prospect that I have on the show is simply to give you the space to describe your game in your own words. Can you just kind of give me a breakdown of what you do well, what you don't do well, what you see your game as? Uh, yeah, so, you know, if I was to describe my game to somebody, uh, I would definitely say, uh, you know, I'm just, I'm one of those guys, um, you know, who's willing to do anything, uh, you know, anything on the floor to win, you know, all the things that's, uh, you know, not pretty, that might not show up in, you know, the stat sheets after the game. Uh, but, you know, I also talk about, you know, I'm a guy with a high motor, um, you know, a guy with the will to not be denied. Uh, you know, I can bruise, um, very physical, and uh, I love to run the floor. And, um, you know, for guys who really haven't seen my game, uh, some people know I can shoot the ball, some don't think I can shoot it, but, you know, I, I know I can shoot the rock as well. Let's start with that motor because I think it just permeates everything that you do on the basketball court. There's never really a moment where you're not playing hard, right? Like that just is something that the first time I saw you when you were playing with City Rocks uh, in the EYBL, like I, that jumped off the page or off the court to me immediately. Where does that motor come from from within you? Why do you play as hard as you do? Definitely say, you know, that motor, I get that hard work. Uh, you know that chip. Uh, you know definitely from my, you know from my dad. You know growing up, um, I used to always watch my pops work so hard. Um, he came here to the states from Jamaica to, uh, you know, pick uh, sugar cane and you know pick fruits off a of farm. And then he's made his way up to Rochester, New York, and you know he did construction for ten plus years. So growing up, I always seen what it was what it was like to have a great work ethic, uh, you know, one that was nonstop. Uh, you know, I knew what it was to, you know, be a go-getter, um, you know, go chase after something and uh, not allow some, just wait for it to come to you. So that's where I get it from. You know, when people talk about my game, uh, it definitely comes from, you know, my pops, uh, you know, that hard work and that work ethic. Yeah, and I'm really glad that you mentioned your dad and your father's Jamaican heritage because you wear number 33. And the most famous... Uh, Jamaican basketball player in NBA history is Patrick Ewing, who also wore number 33. Uh, what made you choose to wear number 33? Was it simply in honor of Patrick Ewing, or uh, was it something a little bit more complicated than yeah. that? Um, it was, you know, I wore 33 definitely because of Patrick Ewing. Uh, you know, obviously him being Jamaican, but, um, you know, once I found out he was Jamaican, that made it even more crazier because uh, my dad's Jamaican as well. And stuff, but you know, I see him. Um, I used to watch just a bunch of his highlights of him playing for the Knicks, and you know how 
uh, meaningful he was to that organization. But not only that, just his game. I felt like he was one of the centers that, you know, started to hit that mid-range J, add that J into his game. And, you know, I like that about him. And, um, you know, obviously finding out about the Jamaican side. And, you know, ever since I started wearing 33, um, you know, my mom, anytime, you know, I'd call her, she answered the phone. Uh, first thing she'll say is, you know, what's going on, 33? Or, you know, she always, <laughs> instead of saying my name, she'll just call me 33. That's awesome. That's yes, sir. an amazing, uh, amazing, amazing story. And talking about your game particularly, something like 60% of your possessions this year came either out of post-ups or out of offensive rebounds, right? And if you look at the NBA today, not too many teams are posting up and not too many teams really truly crash the glass as much as they used to anymore. How do you think that the skills that you showed within the construct of Washington's offense this year, where you were so effective, translate to an NBA game where it's going to be a little bit different? Yeah. Um, I just, you know, I'd definitely say, uh, you know, what I've been doing so far definitely got me to where I'm at. Um, you know, I feel like my game fits in the NBA today. You know, I know guys that got the post up, but um, the one thing I've been saying is if you watch me in the workout setting, um, you know, you will see how easily my game can translate. Uh, there was a lot of things at University of Washington that I didn't get to show because, you know, a lot of my work was done down low. And, you know, that's where I did all, basically all my damage. But, uh, you know, you mentioned crashing the glass. You know, I feel like that's things people don't do um, in the league that much more. That much anymore, so that's why I can be. You know, that's one thing I can impact instantly is uh, rebounding. But you know, I know knowing with my shot, um, knowing with you know how hard I work on my game, that you know once I do get to that level, uh, I'm gonna figure uh, figure out you know all the tools that I need in my game to continue to succeed um, in this game of basketball. Yeah, you know, the one thing that every NBA scout that went up to see you guys practice this year and, you know, even like college coaches that played against you guys before games, they would just tell me, man, Isaiah Stewart can shoot the basketball. Like, I know he's not doing it during games for Washington, and you maybe haven't seen it yet, but Isaiah Stewart can shoot. Uh, Why didn't you necessarily shoot, and how comfortable are you out to, uh, you know, the college and even NBA three-point line? Yeah, uh, you know, honestly, just the reason why I didn't shoot because, uh, you know, if you did look back at the season, uh, you know, obviously I was thinking about what I was though, you know, with helping my team, you know, every single game I got doubled or triple team, which left other guys open and left opportunities. So, uh, you know, I felt like, you know, maybe Coach Hop, uh, you know, maybe he felt like, you know, that was helping our team the most at the moment and, no, they didn't want me to step out and shoot as much, but I mean, the coaches, the coaching staff, you know, they didn't have a problem with you know any of the shots I took. Um, mm-hmm. But you know, it wasn't like on a daily basis. You know, they they wanted me to shoot a three pointer, so uh, you know, it wasn't really going through my mind that to step out and shoot threes. But I've always known I can shoot the ball. I feel like that's something that I'm going to be able to uh, finally show. Yeah, and uh, having seen you before at Hoop Summit and having seen you before at, uh, you know, an event like McDonald's, I've seen you shoot the ball. Like, you definitely have mechanics that will translate to the next level. Uh, I'm going to be really interested to see what you look like at that level because it will be just totally different. Just, you know, like you said, Washington, you were one of the most effective post-up guys in all of college basketball this year. It made sense 
for you to be down low and uh, dominating the game and collapsing the defense in the way you did, you know? Yes, sir. So the next question that, you know, kind of comes up for me is just, you know, what do you do defensively? How comfortable do you feel uh, going out and having to switch out onto an island against a guard right now? Because in the 2-3 zone, yeah. you just really didn't have to do that that often. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, I know that's not for me. People talk about me playing the zone, but I'm going to keep saying this, and, you know, I'm not going to get away from it, but uh, if you go back and watch me in high school, uh, I've played many man my whole life. Uh, yeah. You could ask Coach Hop, the coaching staff. You know, I told Hop, I was never a fan of the zone, and because <laughs> of that reason, he didn't think I was going to pick the University of Washington. But I've been playing man-to-man my whole life. People that know me know I love that challenge. Uh, no, I love to play man-to-man. Uh, you look back, I played in, you know, Team USA, Team USA camps, all these all-star games with, you know, guards that were fast. All that that whole setting was man-to-man. You know, I never backed away, never feared, never shot. So, you know, when people say anything about that, I played one year of zone, you know, my whole life. Uh, other than that, I've been playing man-to-man my whole life, and I never had to worry about switching on to a guard. Yeah, you're just kind of one of those dudes that – I just assume you're going to figure it out. And a big part of it, it it comes down to the fact that having gone through the process of, you know, your background and talking to people about who you are as a person, you're one of the people that genuinely, uh, I've not yet gotten a negative word about. (laughs) Uh, Everyone just talks about and raves about your work ethic and about uh, how you're all about the team and about uh, how just generally you're a great dude to be around and a great teammate. Where does that uh, kind of come from? How did that mentality foster itself within you? Um, just say, I mean, definitely I was raised the right way. To, uh, you know, I definitely grew the right way by my parents. But just mixing it into basketball, you know, just uh, being a leader, um, you know, leading by example, leading by my actions. Um, you know, that's just how it was basically, you know, growing up. And, you know, it sort of kind of just went that way into the game of basketball. You know, all the tools, all the life lessons, you know, my parents taught me growing up, uh, you know, working to basketball really well. So we're talking right now on August 12th, and this will be released on August 13th. And that is about five or six weeks from when the draft was supposed to originally be, right? This process, I'm sure, has not gone how you expected it to go. Uh, I mean, what has it been like from your perspective, just having to deal with uh, what a crazy circumstance the NBA finds itself in, America finds itself in, uh, just everything around the world is so, uh, we're in such uncharted territory that I feel like it'd be incredibly difficult to navigate it if I was someone who was essentially in limbo right now between college and between your professional life. Oh, yeah. Um, it was definitely crazy because, you know, I never thought that Corona would be this big. You know, when I saw that it started shutting down college basketball, I was like, oh, shoot. You know, what's going to happen for the NBA? What's going to happen for the draft? I didn't think it was going to be that serious, but as the weeks and weeks went on and went on and on, you know, I started to figure out how serious this thing is. And, um, you know, it's definitely different. You know, draft's supposed to happen already. Um you know, not sure about, you know, what they're going to do for workouts. But, you know, all I told myself is I just have to stay mentally strong 
and you know, continue to work. You know, work as if tomorrow I have a workout or tomorrow I'm getting drafted. So, you know, I've just been staying mentally strong, hanging in there, and taking it day by day. Yep. Uh, what does a day look like for you right now? A uh, day for me look like right now uh, is waking up. Uh, I work out at 8 a.m., so I wake up, um, you know, get something in my system. Uh, you know, head over to my workout. Um, you know, I do workouts off court and on court as well. So, you know, I head over to my workout at 8 a.m., then after, uh, you know, my strength workout, uh, I have my court workout. And then, you know, after I have my court workout, I come back. And, you know, I'm making sure I'm taking care of my body as well, putting the right things in my body. So my brother, he majors in culinary arts, so he cooks me about three meals a day. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, you know, sir. And, um, yeah, and then, you know, usually with the, my spare time, I'm either – you know, trying to read uh, a few things or uh, um, spend time with friends or on FaceTime with friends or um, doing Bible study with my family that night. So a couple questions there. Are you kind of the, um, the, the test case often for your brother uh, going through all these different uh, potential culinary techniques that he's trying? Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, you know, my brother has his own. His own business here in Rochester. You know, he uh, he caters food, food and sells food. So uh, you know, he's always making me test out and taste all this stuff, and uh, you know, it's definitely great. That's amazing. What is the best thing that your brother's cooked for you? Well, he cooks a, a lot of great things, but me personally, I like his. Uh, it's a honey garlic salmon um, over white rice. It's good. It's a really great meal with some broccoli. Yeah. That sounds amazing. That sounds yeah. absolutely incredible. Uh, the yeah. second part is, what are you reading right now? Because you mentioned that you know you're really trying to you know read a few things. Yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, some books I've read since you know this whole thing started was uh, Chop Wood, Carry Water, um, you know Energy Bus, To Kill a Mockingbird, The Greatest Salesman in the World. Um, also read Jim Candy. Um, so, I mean, those definitely some of the books I've uh, tapped into since, you know, this whole thing been going on. Um, definitely been helping me kill the time. At one point, I think I remember that when you were younger that you uh, you were into boxing at one point. Is that something that you're still, uh, still interested in? <laughs> yeah. I mean, when I was younger, I did want to be a boxer. Um, that was actually, uh, you know, I did boxing before basketball. But, you know, into professional-wise, no, nah, I'm not into to it like that. But, you know, I'd definitely love to get get in a boxing workout for sure, uh, bring back some memories. Yeah, I would imagine that the 7'4 wingspan uh, definitely makes it difficult to hit you in a boxing ring. Oh, yeah, that was definitely my advantage, uh, you know, growing up was I've always had the longer reach than my, uh, my opponents when we were sparring. So I always used the jab effectively. Yeah, I would note to uh, NBA players and prospects that listen to the show, do not fuck with Isaiah Stewart uh, if, you, uh, <laughs> if things start to go down on the court. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. <laughs> so the last few questions are things that I ask every prospect that comes on the show. And, uh, you know, the first one here is just, 
pretty simple. You know, in your time at Washington, you played in the Pac-12. You guys played a pretty tough non-conference schedule. Who was the best player that you went up against this year and why? Um, that, I'll probably say um, Peyton Pritchard. You know, mm-hmm. just going up against, uh, you know, going up against him. Obviously, he's not the same position, but he's a point guard. But, you know, just watching, playing against him that game, you know, he had a hell of a game against us. So I think we went into, I think, over, yeah, definitely overtime. And, uh, you know, he was just keeping his team in it, uh, you know, single-handedly. And so, uh, you know, he definitely did stay in that game. Uh, that game, you know, when you talk about matchups and opponents, um, you know, that probably stick out to me. Uh, he did stay in that game, so. Yeah, Peyton's awesome. Uh, I think that he is definitely going to hear his name called on October 16th. Uh, He definitely deserves it after as much as he's improved over the course of his career. Uh, The second question here to close up, you mentioned that you're reading uh, all the time, and I would imagine you're trying to find other ways as well to, you know, spend your downtime when you're not working out just because, you know, even before you couldn't even really get into the gym as much as you wanted. Are you watching anything yeah. on TV? Or are you watching movies? You know, what are some of the things that you've gotten yeah. a chance to watch? Well, first off, since NBA basketball is back, you know, uh, I, I definitely been, you know, watch that uh, 24-7. And when I'm working out, if I miss any game, you know, I'm always replaying it and watching it. So I got that to definitely, uh, you know, get me through for sure now. But before NBA basketball, shoot, um, I was having a hard time. Uh, I didn't even know what I was watching. I think, you know, um, during that period, it was just, you know, always looking forward to tomorrow, tomorrow, tomorrow. And uh can't really think of anything else I did. But now NBA basketball is back. You know, your boy definitely is happy. Definitely been <laughs> excited to always catch a game. What has been your favorite thing you've seen so far in the NBA? To write up to this date right now, uh, I'd definitely say Damian Lillard. Uh, yeah. You know, he had played against the Clippers, uh, and, you know, they tried clowning him, obviously, because he missed some free throws. But, you know, he came back. Uh, you know, he came back, and, uh, you know, he just let him know that, you know, put, his, put some respect on his name. I've been watching him, uh, seeing that fire that, you know, they just ignited in him and how he's just been uh, showing it out on the court. So I love that. Speaking of dudes not to fuck with, I feel like there is one guy in the NBA you do not want to trash talk and get going. It is Damian Lillard. Like, that guy is going to take it personally every time and get real vindictive, and he's going to bury you real quick. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Much respect. Uh, respect Oh, man. The last question that I've got for you here is, at some point coming up uh, on October 16th or a little bit after that, you're going to sign an NBA contract. What's the first thing that you want to buy when you sign this NBA contract? Um, definitely, you know, what I always wanted to do from when I was a kid is, um, you know, get my parents in a better uh, better spot, a better place. So mm-hmm. I'll definitely make sure they're in a better spot, uh, you know, up to the day. Both of them still live in the heart of the city where it's a lot of crime and violence, you know, pretty much every night. And you could easily just search up Rochester, New York, and see – you know, all the shootings and killings that goes on, you know, every day here. So definitely want to, you know, just move them in a better spot, get them out of the heart of the city, and uh, just make sure, you know, they're good. That's a great answer. Isaiah, I appreciate you coming on the show. 
Thank you so much. This yes, has been sir. the Game Theory Podcast. Please remember, rate, review, subscribe, do everything you can to support the show. We'll be back next week, but until next time, we'll talk soon. Bye.